This morning we'll be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus and the qualifications for elders. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word that you would teach us in a way that changes us, that causes us to turn our minds toward you, that causes us to follow after you, that causes us to seek your glory and not our own. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have been involved in any sort of organization or group, you know the importance of leadership. We know the importance of leadership that if we ever want to see things get done right, someone needs to step up to the front and make sure not only that he is doing what he's supposed to do or she is doing what she's supposed to do, but that others around are using their gifts to their maximum potential as well. We joke in various contexts, whether it's homeowners associations or, or church context or at work, that the surest way to get something not done, the surest way to kill something is to send it to a committee, to a group of people where no one is clearly in charge, yet everyone thinks they're a bit in charge, and things just sort of lay there. I had an opportunity to, to joke that way myself because Presbyterians are, are well known for their committees. We were driving, uh, we were going to the General Assembly venue from the airport and there were five or six of us that met to get into one of these uh, transportation type vans and we were standing around and they told us to come in and, and I joked and I said to the driver, you'll have to wait a minute, we have to form a, a committee to figure out how to load and then a subcommittee to figure out order of people. Leadership really cuts through this. 
And what Paul is talking about to Titus here is the importance of leadership in the church, taking the people of God forward. Now, it is God's wonderful providence that we are looking at the qualifications of elders on the very last Sunday that we are taking nominations for officers. But it is also God's good providence that we're looking at it as the next text in Titus. Because oftentimes we look at these qualifications in Titus or in 1 Timothy in the context of, now we need to tell you what to think about officers so you know who to pick. And this text becomes kind of a checklist. We think about Bob or Harry and we say, hmm, is he, is he above reproach? Okay, check. Is he hospitable? Had me over for lunch last week. Check. Is he disciplined? Yes, his home is in tight order. Check. And we think of it in that context. When in reality, it comes in the middle of a letter from a pastor to a pastor about how you can build up the church. This is not about a checklist about who meets the criteria, but it is rather what God has done to put in place men for the growth of his church. So what I would like us to look at this morning are three things about these men. First, we'll look at church development, how elders are involved in building up the church. Second, we will look at the character description of this man. What is he to look like? Who is he to be? And then third, we will look at the man as he is conveying doctrine to the people of God. Small mnemonic device, CD, for those of us that are old enough to remember music before MP3s. Church development, character description, and conveying doctrine. Let's begin then by looking at church development. You see here in verse 5, this description, this list of what it means to be an elder, starts with a purpose. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus. So that you might put into, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now remember the context here. This is a young church in Crete. Paul perhaps planted some of these churches in some of these towns during the time after his first imprisonment. And he went there with Titus. They did the work of evangelists. They built up the church, and then Paul had to go on to the next field. And he leaves Titus behind because this is a young church, and as we know, it is a church that tended toward immorality. This was not a stuffy, old, traditional church where there is a whole other set of problems. This is a church where nobody really knows exactly what they're supposed to do. There are brand new Christians. Some of them are excited. Some of them are questioning what the Bible really says about certain things. And they're also a church, as we recall from the book of Acts, that is going to be under attack. Under attack from the Jews, under attack from the Greeks and the Romans, because they seek to be different, because they have a different king, not Caesar, but Jesus. So this is a church that needs leadership. The second thing we need to remember here about leading the church is that the church has a purpose in the world. The church is the display of God's work. 
How do you know that God is at work in the world today? You know he's at work in the world today because you see him changing lives, don't you? You see him taking people that were addicted to substances, angry, wrathful, perhaps in prison, abusive, marriages that were disintegrating, children that were rebellious, and we see lives changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where do we see that? In the church. The church is a place of excitement. The church is a place of change. The church is a place of growth where we see families growing, marriages strengthened, the community affected. That is where God is at work. And if that is where God is at work, then that's where we must be at work as individuals and corporately. Because you see, in the final analysis, the church is not only the display of God's work, but it is also the display of God's glory. It's where the glory of God is seen. Some of you, I know, have had opportunity to go to very famous art museums, perhaps in Europe, perhaps even here in Houston or other places, and you've seen magnificent paintings. As you look at that painting and you see the striking colors, the lines, the symmetry, the passion, the emotion, do you say, look at it and say, what an unbelievable piece of cloth. I wonder what the weave is on that canvas. You know, I wonder what the exact pigmentation is of that blue. No. You say, what an artist. I can't believe the talent that look at what he has put on display. That's what the church is for God. We are God's canvas to display to the world the glory of God. And so as Christians, as believers, as the church, we have a responsibility to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and to show the glory of God in everything we do. This is development in the church, and this needs leaders. It's an important task that Paul had started, but he could not finish, and so he purposefully left Titus behind. You'll see this here in the text. Verse 5 begins, This is why, Titus, there is a reason why I left you behind. And, and the verb there is very vivid. He didn't just leave him, he left him behind. He knew he would stay, and Paul was going. But he also knows that Titus can't do it alone. He says, I left you behind in Crete, and you need to appoint elders. You cannot do it yourself, Titus. You must lead this church, but you must gather others around you to do it. You see, because leading the church involves discipling the church. The church is the place... For discipling, there is a great and crying need, not just in our age, but in every age, for discipleship. We all need to grow in our walk with the Lord. We have not reached the point where we will be. We are not now who we will be. We all have to be growing in grace, growing in holiness, growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens in the context of teaching, discipleship, 
of living together. Now, there are many here today in our modern world who don't see a real need for discipleship. There are many modern errors about this that crop up. They say, well, we don't really need to have any kind of formal discipleship in the church. It's just enough for me to sit and read my Bible by myself. I don't need to teach others and pass on what I've learned. I don't need to learn from others. But you see, this is not the body of Christ then. It is individuals. We are to be built up, and this requires discipleship. But it also requires a structure. Jesus Christ has built his church. And so the church is the place where discipling happens. We know this because our Lord told us this. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, of a passage that is very familiar to all of us. In the Great Commission, he took his disciples, ones that he was discipling, and he said to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, it's interesting that the Great Commission that passage that we use that is so appropriate for evangelism does not stop at evangelism. Jesus doesn't say, go and make converts. He doesn't say, go and make people who believe in me. He says, go and make disciples. The first step of discipleship is coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if here today you have not come to the place where you know your only hope, the only hope for your sorrow, for your sin, for your lack, is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and find in Him and what He has done hope, then today is the first day of your discipleship. Because I am here to call you to faith, to tell you you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by believing in Him can you be saved. But your discipleship journey does not end there. You must grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must grow so that you can begin then to disciple others. Who will then in turn grow and disciple others. And how does this all happen? Where does this discipleship occur? It occurs in the church. And it requires care. And because of that, Jesus Christ has given to us pastors, teachers, elders. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ went to be at the right hand of God the Father, but he did not leave us alone. He gave us great gifts. He gave us elders. And these elders, like Titus here, are in place to set right what is lacking. Now, this word for to set right is a very interesting word. It's in Greek, you can take words and make them stronger by taking prepositions and sticking them on the word. You can make these words bigger and bigger. So you take a word and you stick a preposition on it, and then this ver verb has a second preposition on it. So it's really emphatic. But at its root, set right is the word ortho. Now, many of you know what that word means, right? Some of you can smile and know what that word means. Because you have seen an orthodontist. And what does an orthodontist do? 
he takes what is crooked, what is a bit out of shape, what is not working exactly as it should, and he sets it right so that your teeth work as they should, so that they don't cause you pain, so that they look beautiful, so that they are more useful and helpful to you. And you see, that is what Paul did with Titus. He left Titus behind so that he would set right what was lacking. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. Perhaps the church in Crete needed help with hospitality. Perhaps it needed help with love and grace. Perhaps it needed help with discipline. We don't know, but what we do know is that Paul left Titus behind to appoint elders so that as a group, the church of Jesus Christ at Crete would be beautiful, straight, right, reflecting the glory of her maker. This is what leadership does. It's why we need leaders. Well, what does a leader then look like? That's an obvious next question. Paul begins then to describe for us what these elders, these men who have been left behind, who have been appointed, what they are to look like and be. And he does it by means of a character description. Starting in verse 6, he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, do you notice something there where I began and ended? There, there's a phrase that's used twice. Above reproach. That is what the elder is to be. Broadly speaking, he is to be a man above reproach. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the elder is to be perfect? No. Because if the elder was to be perfect, there would be no elders. There would be no pastors. There would be but one elder, he who sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it can't mean that. But what it does mean is an elder, a leader, must be above reproach. He must be someone who is marked by being a man of godliness. The phrase above reproach basically means that they are not one against whom an accusation can be made. So it doesn't mean that you will be known as someone who has always told the truth your whole life and you're perfect. But you're not the kind of person that people look at and say, don't believe what he tells you. <laughs> I'm telling you. He is a bit of a liar. He's not a man who never loses his temper ever, but he is not someone that is marked out and when he walks in a room that says, whoa, stand back from him. He's about to explode like Mount Vesuvius. He's not someone that is marked, known by his accusations against him. Now, this is true in all of the categories we're going to look at in the next few minutes. He is above reproach in every one of these areas, in both his family and in his person, in himself. The overarching category is that a man is to be above reproach. Some translations use the word blameless, not to be able to have blame laid 
against him. And we begin by seeing the character of a man who is to be a leader and elder first in his family. Because you see, a man's true character comes out in his family for good and for ill. Anyone can put on an act for an hour or two on a Sunday. It's impossible to put on an act 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And in your family is where a man has relationships, where he is not by himself, where there must be give and take, where he must lead, where he must serve. And so Paul says, first thing that you must look at is a man's family. And he begins first in a very interesting place. He begins in a man's marriage. Now, you'll note, and I will not go into great detail, that Paul says that someone who is an elder must be the husband of one wife. Last time I looked, that didn't apply to women. They couldn't be husbands. He is to be a man of a certain character, and so elders are to be men. And as a result, I think often men look at texts like this, and then we turn to the book of Ephesians, and we say that a man is to be the head of his wife, that the wife is to be submissive, and the man is to be in charge. He's the one we are to look to. The wife should be two or three steps behind and to the left, and let's go forward. And yet Paul says the very first thing that you need to do when you test a man is you look to his wife. What does his wife think about him? How does his wife treat him? How does he treat her? The most important thing in an elder's life is his wife. Shocking, isn't it? Tells us something about the value of women in the church. And an elder here is to be a, the husband of one wife. We might term it this way, perhaps you've heard it, a one-woman man. Now, why do I say that? Because historically, some have taken this text to say, well, then an elder, if he must be the husband of one wife, he can't be single. But who's writing this text? It's Paul. Did Paul have a wife? No. And as a matter of fact, Paul said, I would that all could be single like I am and devoted to the Lord, but I know you can't, so therefore, have a wife. So how could Paul be describing something that would restrict him? There's also one other person who I think would be qualified to be an elder that was single. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can't take that as our meaning here. And so similarly, some have historically said that someone who is a widower automatically becomes unelderd because he's not the husband of one wife. It can't mean that either. I think also it does not apply to those who have been divorced biblically. Because Paul says those who have been divorced biblically, that is, that their spouse has committed adultery against them or they have been abandoned, Paul says that they are then free to remarry. So what then does Paul mean here? I think what Paul means here is something very much less specific, but much more far-reaching. He means that a man must be known for faithfulness, both sexually and in marriage. 
And so the man who is single who would be an elder must be known as a man who is faithful in terms of relationships between men and women. He should not be known as a man who lingers over the Vogue magazine. He should not be known as a man who watches the cable television show on very low volume late at night. He should not be the man that as he's at lunch or dinner with his wife has whiplash with his neck as ladies walk by. He must be a man who is known for his purity, for his love of the ladies in his life, whether they be his wife, his sisters, his daughters. He is a man that is marked by fidelity to be a protector Now, it's not just the absence of sin here, remember. There is also a positive nature to be be thought about. A man who is a one-woman man is committed to his wife. He seeks her good. He seeks her sanctification. He seeks her blessing. And again, I think we can expand this out. Young men, those of you that do not have a wife, if you long to be an elder someday, Paul says, if any man desires to be an elder, a bishop, he desires a good thing. You can begin right now by honoring young ladies in your class, by treating them with modesty and respect, by protecting your sisters. That is how you begin to grow in godliness. That is how you show you have character, the kind of character that leads the church. But it's not just in his marriage that the man is to be seen. He is also to be seen in his home. And we see this in the next phrase. He is to have children. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, he must be above reproach. Now, just as we had said earlier that the passage didn't require a wife, I don't think here the passage requires children. Because if it did then why did we talk about singleness just a a few moments ago? And who opens up the womb? Is it man? Is it woman? Can you have children just by really wishing hard enough upon the right star? No. Some of you know for a fact you can't. It's the Lord. And so it is not a checklist requirement here that, again, a man must have physical children. But what is happening here is if a man has children, they must be of a certain way. And if he doesn't have children, he must treat children around him in a certain way. Just like the husband of one wife treats women a certain way. He is godly in his relationships to children. So... It's not just his own children that are in view. It's also the children that are around. Do your elders desire to serve and encourage in Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, in home visitation? This is what an elder is supposed to be. He is supposed to long to be around children and to build them up that they might be faithful. You may not realize it, But there is theological purpose behind the high five and the fist bump. It is a way to connect with young people. To begin the process of discipling. 
to see that they would grow to serve the Lord. And so this is most evident in an elder's home. Now we must look at one of these words here for a moment and come to an answer. That is, Paul says here in our translation, his children are believers. Now this word here, this Greek word is pistos, which is the word for faith, having faith, or being faithful. And I don't think what Paul means here is that every single one of an elder's children must have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that were the case, then Pastor Terrell is in real trouble. Because he and his lovely wife Katie are about to have a baby. And last I heard, they come out screaming, not talking. So anytime a man were to have a new child, he'd be unelderd. But what does this mean? And it also cuts against our theology. Think about this. Everything we know from the Bible says that God is in charge of salvation from beginning to end, not me. And if that's true, then why would I require elders to be people who can manipulate salvation? It's up to God. But this phrase here doesn't mean nothing either. It means they must be faithful. It means they must be marked by faithfulness, by obedience, by a willingness to follow after the Word of God. And I think what Paul has in mind here specifically is young people. He uses the phrase for children that is involved with young people. Because as young people become older people, we have even less control over their outward obedience. You know, we talk all the time about how difficult teenagers are, and that's true. But we need to remember that in Paul's day, a 14 or 15-year-old girl would be married and the head of her own house with her husband. Men would be married in their late teens. And so there is a period in which, as we apply this, there is some stress and struggle. But the one thing that an elder's household must be marked by is a pursuit of godliness in the home. The children must not be known as being prodigal, wasteful. They must not be rebellious and pushing off authority. Why? Because quite simply, if a man can't keep authority in his own home, he can't keep it in the church. Now, before you think what I have just advised every elder to do is to rule his home with an iron fist, what's the best way to keep authority? by a zealous study of the Word of God. Have you ever known an older man or even an older woman who could stop someone dead in their tracks by saying, I'm awfully disappointed. No yelling, no screaming, no threats of year-long groundings. Just, if you do that, you'll really disappoint me. It's not what the Lord calls us to do. You see, there's something that's been inculcated there. An obedience to the Word of God, a standard above authority. This is what an elder is to be in his family. Then Paul goes on through a list of character traits, what an elder is supposed to be in himself. We'll just look at them very briefly. I think they're, they're self-evident. 
He says both negative and positive things. But overall, the context is, the concept is, that an elder is to be one who has self-mastery. He is not a slave to anything wicked or evil. He has control over himself. First, we see that he is to be not arrogant. He is not to be one who is marked by pride. Why? Because obviously you cannot have a leader in the church that thinks that his way is better or more important than God's way. That we don't do this because the scriptures say so, but because I say so. Beware of a man who is an elder who is always right. Never sorry. Never possibly entertains the notion that others might know better in this particular instance. This is someone who is not an elder. He's also not quick-tempered. Now, notice, this does not mean he never has a temper. Paul has a temper in the Bible. Peter has a temper in the Bible. Our Lord Jesus Christ overturned the tables of the money changers. But you'll notice that none of these men are known by their temper. They're not one spark away from an explosion. It's the type of man who's quick-tempered. It's like, you know you see in the movies when there's a car that's been in an accident and there's a huge pile of gas around it and that trail that goes all the way down and someone throws a match or a spark and it lights up and you know that car is going to go up like a volcano? If you know a man like that, He's not to be an elder. He's not to be mastered by his temper. He's also not known to be a man who is a drunkard. Now, this, of course, deals with drink and with wine, but it, I think, can apply in many other ways. A man may not be a slave to the bottle. He may be a slave to the prescription bottle, or to work, or to golf, to vacation. You see, a man is not to be a slave to the things of this world. He is to seek the things of God. He's not to be violent. He's not to be known as a man who is angry to the point of physical violence. And he is not to be greedy for gain. He's not looking for the angle, whether it's money or a promotion. All of these things, Paul says, an elder is not to be. But he is to be these other positive things. He's to be hospitable. So, now think about this. The very first positive thing that Paul describes is not the elder's knowledge or wisdom. Not his persuasiveness. Not his charisma. Not his leadership ability. The very first thing that is described is his hospitality. Does he have people at his home? Does he have time for other people? Is he willing to be interrupted from his daily life to help others? That is the first thing that Paul mentions positively. He's also to be a lover of that which is good. Now, what does that mean? Paul gives us a commentary on this in Philippians 4, verse 8. You remember that. Paul says the following. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. 
Does the man who is a man of God, is he someone who thinks on the good things of God? Or is he always a complainer? Does he see every conspiracy? Does he see every problem in the world and no solutions? An elder is to be a man who is a lover of what is good. He's also, Paul says, to be self-controlled and upright. He is to be law-abiding, thoughtful, prudent in what he does. He is to be a man under control, not known for fits of spending or anger or violence. He is to be a man who is holy and disciplined, devout with the Word of God, pious. And this last word, discipline, sums everything up in one package. He is to be a man who is under the authority of God, seeking to serve the Lord. That is who he is. But there's also something, finally, about what he does. He is to convey doctrine. Look with me now at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This means that the man of God must have both knowledge and application. First, he must have knowledge. He must have a zeal for the truth. He must be eager to obtain the truth. He must hold firm onto this word, cling to it. The Greek word there is very vivid. A way to think about this in your mind's eye is the man of God must hold on to the truth the way your four or five-year-old holds on to the toy that they will not give up to you. You know what I'm talking about. Give me that. No. Give me that. No. I'm going to take that now. No, you won't. You get your hand on And then what do you do? Moms, you've done this. You take the hand and you do what? You move the fingers off one at a time before you can get it. They're clinging for dear life to it. That's the way the man of God clings to the Word of God. He can't live without it. He has a zeal for this Word because he knows it is reliable. He knows it is trustworthy, Paul says. It is worthy of trust. And if you are a man of God and you are staking your eternal destiny upon the promise in this book, you had better think it's trustworthy. Because if this book is wrong, you are lost. But you see, the man of God clings to this word of God and he points others to it to say this is the only place where life is found. He must cling to it in a way that is understanding, Paul says. There is a link here to Paul's teaching, to Jesus' teaching. The man of God does not come up with new theories about the word of God. He follows down in the faith once delivered to the saints. But you see, the man of God, the elder, the pastor, is not someone that is known only for how much he knows about the Bible. Too often that is the case in the church at large, isn't it? It's the guy who can spit out the most memory verses. The guy who's fastest with the sword drill. The guy who has an opinion on everything. But you see, it's not just what you know. It's what you do with what you know, Paul says. Because he must know this so that. There's a purpose here. 
There's a reason why you are to know. And the reason why you are to know is so that you might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. The man of God must apply the word of God to himself and to others. He must give instruction. But this word for instruction is more than just teaching. It's more than just writing on a whiteboard. It is exhortation. It is pushing to action. And he must do it with sound doctrine. The word here for sound is, is a word that will give you an illustration in your mind. It's the word that we get hygiene from. Now, I want you to think, would you rather have a word that is clean, healthy, sound as a board, or a word that has yellow and blackened teeth and crust under its fingernails and hair that's unkempt and an odor that wafts off it? The sound word is the one that we are to go to. The hygienic word, the word that is in health, the word that gives us health. But we can't just teach positively. We must also contradict error. We need to defend the word of God. Our goal is to protect others and to win them over. Well, what does all this mean then for us as a church? Some of you may be sitting here and saying, I'm an elder and you've just made me feel really bad this morning. Thank you. You've put up a list here. There's no way I can reach. To which I say, join the club. I'm the secretary. Some of you are saying, well, I don't know if I can measure up. But to you I say, be encouraged. Follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are saying, well, this doesn't even apply to me because I'm a lady. <laughs> so I don't even have to deal with this. Two things you must know and must do in conclusion. First, this text tells us that if the church of God depends upon discipleship. And if discipleship depends upon elders, you here sitting in the pew must pray for your elders. It is not an option. If you love your children, you will pray for your elders. If you love your wife and your husband, you will pray for your elders. If you love your church, if you love the gospel, you will pray for your elders. Secondly, and let me finish by getting a little close to home. I'll move from preaching to meddling. All of these requirements, every single one, but the ability to excel in teaching is a requirement of every Christian. Do you know a Christian who could be a drunkard? Does Jesus say, go ahead, be a drunkard? Oh, go ahead, be violent, kill people all the time, it doesn't matter. Oh, you don't need to be hospitable at all. Now, the Bible is full. I don't have time, unless you want to wait till Wednesday. We'll take a few days to go through all of the passages that describe all of these characteristics to every Christian. You see, Paul here wants Titus to appoint elders who are a certain sort of man so that they can create and build up a certain type of Christian. You need leaders who are a certain way so that the people will be a certain way. That is, people of the book. Godly followers. So the challenge comes to you here, to hear the challenge from Paul, to seek after it, 
to seek to be a person of character of godliness, a person who conveys the truth of God to others so that the church of God might be built up and the glory of Jesus Christ might be seen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us elders. We thank you, O Lord, that by your grace, you are building up a people for yourself. And we ask, O Lord, that you would make us a people of the book, that we would seek after you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.